All right, I'll be honest. Um, Of all of the different aspects of the Old Testament law that we've looked at in this series, the sacrificial system, animal sacrifice, has got to be one of the most uncomfortable when you really stop and think about it, especially for a modern American person like like me, uh, or like you, verse and after verse after verse after verse of, of blood and slaughter and internal organs and fat and dung and burning flesh. Like it, it's visceral, okay? It's a, it, that's literally what it is, it's visceral. And on top of all that, you get the sense when you read through these, these laws and you read the story, you get the sense that an enormous amount of animals would have died in this way. Like slaughter after slaughter, day after day, year after year, just an incredible amount of blood and guts and death, right? That, this, it's all over the place. Now, all of this ritual slaughter is a little bit foreign to us in America. Even if you grew up on a farm and you, you've slaughtered animals, like I've been around animals being slaughtered before, even if that's the case, I guarantee it wasn't in the context of someone then dipping their finger in the blood and smearing it on a ritual altar, okay? So even that aspect of it is it's different than our experience. However, however, it's really important to understand that the sacrificial system in the law is a part of a, it, it's a major part of a story that spans the entire, the entire work of scripture. This is a, a central theme, a central idea to a whole bunch of, of the, the story that makes up the Bible, that makes up the story that we are a part of today. So we're going to look at it because it plays a significant role, even if it is a little bit weird and uncomfortable to us today. We'll start with this. We'll start with this reality. Even though it's foreign to us, animal sacrifice as a concept was very, very common in the ancient world. Put simply, animal sacrifice was the way that ancient people interacted with the gods. Okay, this was the way that humans and the gods could interact. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but, but in, in their, their culture, this was a significant aspect of everybody's culture. It was just part of of what it meant to live in the ancient world. And as we see in scripture though, God chooses to work within that cultural framework, but he does it in a way where he reinterprets this practice. He reinterprets animal sacrifice. He uses it as a way to connect with uh, the people of Israel and he uses it to enact this grand story of redemption. The same story that you and I are still a part of. So I want to show you what I mean by that. So please turn with me in a Bible to Leviticus chapter 4. Now, I would love it if you had a Bible open in front of you because we're going to be looking at several different passages today. In fact, we're actually going to be turning, and I'll give you another page number a little bit later, um, to a passage in the New Testament. So I'd love it if you could follow along in a Bible, in one of the house Bibles. And by the way, it'll be page 87 in the house Bibles. Now, there are a whole bunch of different kinds of offerings in Leviticus, okay? There are, uh, you know, peace offerings and guilt offerings and offerings of thanksgiving. But what I want to look at today is specifically uh, something called an, an offering of atonement or an atonement offering because this one is pretty central to the story of the Bible. So let me read this to you, this, this specific law, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 27 of Leviticus 4. If any of the common people sin by violating one of the Lord's commands, but they don't realize it, they're still guilty. When they become aware of their sin, they must bring as an offering for their sin a female goat with no defects. They must lay a hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place where burnt offerings are slaughtered. Then the priest will dip his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. 
He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, and then he must remove all of the goat's fat, just as he does with the fat of the peace offering, and he will burn the fat on the altar, and it will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Through this process, the priest will purify the people, making them right with the Lord, and they will be forgiven. Okay, so that last verse right there, that basically tells you why this law is there, what this is all about. This is a way for the people to be made right with the Lord and to be forgiven for their sin. Now, I mentioned that God is he's reinterpreting animal sacrifice in the ancient world. And uh, actually, verse, uh, verse 31 is a perfect example of that. Because in the ancient world, uh, most cultures thought of animal sacrifice as a way of feeding the gods. Okay, this was their mentality that, that the gods in some way depended on humans for their sustenance. And so they would sacrifice an animal to try to feed the god and make the god happy with them and, and do something nice to them. But not Yahweh. Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, he, he's different because if you look at verse 31, it says that he does not depend on humans to survive. Instead, these offerings are just a, a pleasing aroma. It's a, it's a gift. It's a, it's a symbol to him, but it's not something that he depends on to survive. Okay, so he's reinterpreting animal sacrifice. But of course, a really big question in here, after what I said before about this being about sin, is what does an animal dying have to do with sin at all? Well, this, again, is where it's really important to realize that these laws are a part of a much, much bigger story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So let me remind you of this story in case you haven't been here for this series. I'm just going to kind of catch you up because this is a part of that. Adam and Eve the first humans in the story in Genesis, they eat from the second tree in the garden. There's the tree of life, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, or as I'm kind of shorthanding it, the tree of self-sufficiency. They decide they don't want to trust in God. They want to eat from that, that tree of self-sufficiency, and as a result, they are exiled from the garden. Now, that garden, I, I told you guys that the garden is meant to be, we're supposed to picture it as the, at the top of a mountain, Okay, so this garden, this mountain garden is a place of God's presence. And now through their self-sufficiency, through the lack of trust, Adam and Eve are banished from that garden. And they're, they're kicked off the mountain of the Lord, in other words. And they are forced into the wilderness of a broken world where they are forced to scratch out a living and try to survive in, in, a, in a way, away from God's abundance. But as we've said many times in this series, from the very beginning, God was eager to bring humans back into his presence, back into the abundance and the fullness of life that was meant for them in Eden. And so he begins a, a kind of a divine rescue mission. He calls out a people to lead the way back to Eden, the Israelites. He calls them out, he saves them from slavery, and then he begins to meet with them. He meets with them in a place called the tabernacle. It's kind of a, a big tent. And in the middle of this tent is the holy place and then the holiest place where essentially it represented a little mini Eden. The whole thing was decorated to look like Eden. It was, it was meant to be like a little garden. And so in that representative tent that looked like Eden, God would meet with the people. And this is the place where these sacrifices would happen. This is a part of God giving them the law of Moses, which guides the people, the whole people of Israel, on how to live, how to, how to organize their lives in a way that would, that would allow them to return to God's presence, to, to ascend the mountain of the Lord, in other words, and to return to Eden. Or in other words, how to be one with God again, 
one with God. Now we have a word in English that we use and it's atonement to describe this. Atonement, or as it was originally formed, at-one-ment. Atonement is being made one with God again. And according to the law, sacrificing an animal made that possible. Here's how. If you remember, God is, in this story, he's the creator of all life. He's not just a created thing. No, he created everything. He's the creator of all life. So if he is the source of life, then what happens if you choose anything other than him? What are you choosing? You're choosing death, the opposite of life. If he is where all life comes from, then if you choose something else, you're choosing death. You're choosing death. And so if that's the case, then something is going to die because of your choice of rebellion. Something has to die when you choose self-sufficiency. And that's where the animal comes in. Look at verse 28. When a person sins, they must bring as an offering, this is important, a female goat with no defects. With no defects. A perfect animal, in other words. Why? Well, a perfect animal represents a blameless soul. A, a perfect animal represents life and health and order, a, a, a soul that is, is intended the, the way that God intended life to be. Compare that with the sinner who's bringing that offering. The sinner that has chosen rebellion, they're tainted with disorder and, and decay and death. That's what they brought into their world by choosing something other than life. So you've got a living creature, spotless, and a dying sinner. Well, this sacrifice is a substitution between the two. In verse 29, the law commands that the sinner must place their hand firmly on the animal's head. And I never realized this until recently. This is a significant act in this whole sacrifice. By placing their hand firmly down onto the animal's head, it's an act which essentially says, this animal is me. This animal is me. This innocent creature that's done nothing wrong is going to take my place and pay the price for what I've done. Now, this is important. If in that same verse, you'll note that it is the sinner and not the priest who actually does the slaughtering. They've essentially said, this animal is me and now I am going to die to myself. Can you imagine? Just imagine the weight of that moment. I, I know that ancient Israelites, they were around the slaughter of animals. It was a normal thing. But just imagine what that would have felt like, even in that culture, to, to basically look at that innocent creature and acknowledge the fact that that creature is losing its life because of what you have done. To, to visibly, viscerally uh, witness how your rebellion against the creator of life is bringing death. This right here, this is an act of repentance. This isn't just some random thing you do. This is a heavy moment where you were saying, God, I've messed up and I'm asking you to bring me back. In Psalm 51, the psalmist says, the sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. That's the, the posture and the attitude that the worshiper is meant to have as they are sacrificing this animal that represents them. After this, in verse 30, the priest, it says the priest is supposed to spread the blameless animal's blood on the altar as an act of purification. Now, we don't think this way in our modern world, but in the ancient world, they thought of blood as the place where your life lived. 
And it makes sense if you, you know, spill all of your blood, you die. So it makes sense that that's how they would think of it. But they thought of, uh, you know, your life was in your blood. So if you are a blameless animal or a blameless person, then your blood is pure. It is blameless blood. And so we actually see that in Leviticus 17. It says the life of the body is in its blood. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. And that's what's happening by taking this blameless animal's blood and smearing it on the altar. It's a way of, of bringing human and or bringing creation in contact with the divine and in a purifying way. So this sacrifice, this whole enactment is basically saying that through death, the sinner has been forgiven. And now the, this blameless creature is then burned. And this is important not just to get rid of a body. This is burned to turn that creature that represents the sinner into smoke. What happens with smoke? It rises. And this smoke represents this animal's body rising unhindered into heaven. Or in other words, up the mountain of the Lord. It's ascending into God's presence, representing the person who had sinned. If I had to put it simply, it's basically if the sinner is, ascend- is, is meant to think this animal is me, right? This animal is me. That's what I put my hand on its head. And I have now died because of my rebellion. That's the consequence of choosing something other than life. I have been made pure though through blameless blood. And so now I can ascend the mountain of the Lord and I can enter again into God's presence just as this smoke is rising to heaven. And remember where this is all happening. This is all happening at the entrance to the holy place and in the tabernacle. The holy place which represents Eden. This is essentially a sinner making an offering at the gate of Eden. Asking to be brought back in. That's what this all represents. Asking to be brought back into God's presence. Put simply, this sacrificial act is a powerfully symbolic moment which represents ultimately an act of the heart. It represents repentance. Repentance. Now, I know this is a lot. There's a lot to think about. And, and frankly, it's intense, it's bloody, it's gross, and it's not at all the way that we think about the world. I get that. So I'm positive there are some of you who are probably pretty turned off about this, and you're like, this seems really gross and even barbaric, right, that it's in our Bible. But let me just point something out for you. Remembering for a moment that this was a completely different culture than ours, let me point out to you what this actually is communicating to the Israelites. So many people think of the law of Moses as legalism. Right? They think of it as, as an angry God who's just like, cross me and I'll blast you. That's what they think of when they think of the law. But think what this sacrificial system actually means. This means that God is ultimately a God of grace. He's a God of grace. He's a God who is saying, look, this is how to live, but I know you're going to choose something other than this. This is how to find life, but I know you're going to rebel against this. I know that you are going to spit in my face. But even so, I want to give you a way back. I want to make it possible for you to come back to this kind of life that I want you to live. I don't want you to be stuck in your sin forever. This is the way that a God of grace brings people who are going to continue to rebel back into his presence, back into the garden. Yahweh is not a God of legalism. He's a God of grace and love. And even though this seems weird to us today, that's what this is. Now, I wish that we could spend 
a lot more time talking about the sacrificial system, uh, only because there's so much more to get into. We barely scratched the surface in what I just covered. My brother-in-law last night said, you know, we could probably have done an entire sermon series just on last week's sermon and this week's sermon, and I totally agree. Uh, I'm not going to, don't worry, but I'm just saying, like, we could spend, like, six whole weeks talking about the sacrificial system. Again, we won't. We won't do that. Maybe I'll find a way to put it on YouTube or something. Okay, but here's the deal. This uh, whole system all fits into the same bigger storyline. There are all these other, uh, these offerings, offering, peace offerings, and what to do when you've got a, a conflict with somebody else in the community. All of these are a part of bringing life, restoring the Eden kind of life. And including, and the, probably most importantly, and I wish I could have had time for this, is, is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is the day, once a year, where the entire community of Israel is made right with God. And that's where we get the word scapegoat. It's like all this stuff, it's really cool. I won't get into it, but I will just say this. It is all, all of it, a part of the exact same storyline of God's redemption. So what I want to do right now, though, because we're not going to get into all the details, is I want to follow that thread through the rest of the Bible. I want to take that thread, the idea of of this sacrifice as a way to return to Eden, and I want to see what happens next. Okay, so let's do that together. I want to follow this story. What happens if you continue to read the Bible is you realize pretty quickly that the Israelites, they completely missed the point of this sacrifice. They, they, they missed the point of this whole sacrificial system. This was meant, like I said, to be a, a solemn and a somber moment of repentance, right? This is a moment for someone to bring their broken heart to God. But instead didn't take long for this to become something like a get out of jail free card, right? I can, I, can, I can just do whatever I want. I can just go around breaking law after law after law. And then as long as I kill a few animals, I'll be fine. I can be right back, you know, I'll get all the things in order. But that's not what it was meant to be. They were misunderstanding the point of the law. This law is not about obeying a bunch of random rules. The whole law is about restoring God's intentions for the world, restoring humanity back to Eden, life and goodness and abundance and holiness and, and justice. We talked about justice a few weeks ago, right? This is a major factor of the law. Well, people were going around in Israel being unjust and then thinking that as long as they killed a few animals, they'd be fine. They were completely missing the point. Listen to, to how God feels about that uh, from the words of the prophet Isaiah. What makes you think, God says, that I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered in the blood of innocent victims. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. They were missing the point. The law of Moses, it's an invitation to spread life into this world. It's not a license to spread death and get away with it. The people missed the point. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that the Israelites were going to need something new, something different, something bigger to actually fully atone for the sin that they were spreading in this world. Something that was going to last Something that would not just save the people from the endless death that they kept bringing into this world, but would actually change them into sources of life. We needed, humanity needed, a greater sacrifice. Interestingly, 
The same prophets who condemned the Israelites for for their thoughtless injustice, they began to also start tuning into an idea that that greater sacrifice was coming. Something new was on the horizon and they began to speak about it. A human who could actually live out the spirit of the law, a blameless servant of God who didn't need animal sacrifices because he, he followed the law completely. Someone who, who could actually live a blameless, spotless life. A lamb with no defects who could become the ultimate substitute for humanity. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, we've strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. That prophecy, that prophecy was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet now we know that Jesus was that prophecy's perfect fulfillment. Jesus is the son of God, right? He is the the divine in human form. When he came to dwell among us, he lived a blameless life. He perfectly lived out the spirit of the law. As we've talked about in this series, everywhere he went, he spread life and joy and peace and justice and fullness and abundance. He lived an Eden life and so did everyone who came to get to know him. They tasted Eden. But even though Jesus was walking among us, humanity seemed doomed to repeat the mistakes of our ancestors, rebellion and self-sufficiency and sin. You just look at the gospel story and you see that again and again. Even though Jesus was teaching humanity not to eat from that tree of self-sufficiency, he was giving them the tree of life. Even though that was happening, we kept on choosing that self-sufficiency tree. We kept on choosing death and the gates of Eden remained closed to us. Until, until Jesus became that new kind of sacrifice. Until Jesus became a substitute for not just one person, not just a few people, but all of sinful humanity. Jesus became the animal whose blood would make us pure and whose death would replace our own. When Jesus died on that cross, when he was being crucified, it is as if, every single one of us put our hand down onto his head. Instead of saying, this animal is me, we said, this man is me. This man is me as he goes up to the cross and dies this shameful death, naked and alone on this cross with his blood spilling out for every one of us. This man is me. Jesus was a substitute for us. Now, the Gospels tell us that because of his death, at, the, at that very moment, the curtain of the temple was broken in two, was ripped in half. And that curtain, that represents 
the gates to Eden. Those gates were flung wide open and suddenly we, because of the death of Jesus, had the ability to enter into God's presence again. And this is the interesting thing. We don't talk about this enough, but the moment that Jesus died, suddenly obedience to the law, actually living out the, the spirit of these laws, all of this Eden kind of life, it was no longer out of reach for us. Through the death of Jesus, we now had the ability to start spreading life in ways that all of our spiritual ancestors seemed unable to do. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. It's gonna be page 1015 in the House Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10. And listen to this. The, the writer of Hebrews, he's totally dialed in to this whole narrative. He first starts by quoting a little bit of the Old Testament and then he makes some of his own comments. Look at this. Verse 16 of Hebrews 10. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when, when sins have been forgiven, the writer of Hebrews says, then there's no more need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter God's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Through Jesus, the law is no longer an unachievable ideal for us, which requires the blood of thousands and thousands of animals to maintain. No, because we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the presence of God within us who gives us the power to live out the spirit of the law. We are the tabernacle now. We are the meeting point between the divine and the human, between God and man. We are the tabernacle. We can now live out the law from within, spreading life and Eden into our world and all of our rebellion and our sin and our self-sufficiency, it's all just washed away in the blood of Jesus, permanently, permanently. And it, you know what, if we mess up again, we make another sinful choice, guess what? It's already done. It's been washed away. All we have to do is repent and bring it right back to God and it's done. If we confess our sins to him, First John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It is done. As Hebrews says in, in verse 22, we can go right into the presence of God. We can go right back into the garden. All it takes, all it takes is us putting our trust in Jesus in surrendering our self-sufficiency and recognize, recognizing that we were never going to get back into Eden on our own. Acknowledging that our Savior was our substitute, that he experienced the death that we deserved. He was pierced for our rebellion. Now right there, that is plenty to think about. 
That is the good news, that we can now live again because of the death of Jesus, that we can enter into Eden. But guess what, folks? That's not the end of the story. Because Jesus was our substitute, yes, our substitute in death, but he didn't stay dead. No, Jesus was brought to new life, still as our substitute, which means what? That we are brought into new life. That's what we recognize whenever we have baptisms. We talk about the fact that we are brought, we are resurrected along with Jesus into new life because he continues to be our sacrifice. But that's not it. That's not all because what happened after he rose from the dead? Jesus ascended into heaven, just like the smoke from that altar ascending up the mountain of the Lord. Jesus, right now, is sitting in heaven on a throne, ruling this coming new creation. He is, he is ruling at his Father's side. But, it, but wait, if he was our substitute in death, and if he was our substitute in resurrection, then wouldn't that mean that he's our substitute in ascending into heaven? Wouldn't that mean that in some way we are with Jesus right now? Yes, that is exactly what it means. God is so rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 says this, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Are you getting this? Jesus is sitting on the throne, ruling a new creation, and we are ruling it with him. Because of Jesus, we are not just allowed back into Eden. No, we're not just allowed back in. God's not just letting us in. No, we are now given the responsibility of spreading it, of shepherding it, of caring for it. In Christ, we are the shepherds and the gardeners and the stewards of a new creation, not just someday, but right now. A new world made from the resurrection of this one. And every one of us has a part to play in that. We talk about that all the time here at Grace. How you have a unique and specific purpose for which you are here. A destiny to be used by God to heal this broken world. This is what we're talking about. You are sitting on the throne with Jesus, ruling a new creation. That is the power that you have to bring healing to this world. Can you see this? Like, are, are, you, are you getting this in your mind? Because this is what this story is ultimately leading us to. A broken world being healed. Humanity loved back into Eden, back into abundance and fullness of life by a God whose love knows no bounds. It's wild. It is wild. And it's all because Christ took our place. It's all because he was our substitute. Because we were able to place our hands on his head and say, this man is me. He was the sacrificial lamb. Now, I want to close with this, this thought. This series, this whole Return to Eden series has been a lot. It's been deep. It's been, uh, it's been challenging. It's been complicated. But ultimately, what it all boils down to is just one idea. It all comes down to one thought, and it's this. God loves you. God loves you, and he longs for you to be in his presence. He longs for you to come home. 
Yes, you, God loves you, you with your mistakes, you with your your broken past, you with your addictions, you with your problems, you with your anxiety. God sees you and loves you now, not when you have it all together, but right now he loves you. Do you hear me? God loves you and he wants you back home. All of this, this entire book is, is is a testimony to that, that God is trying to bring you home past your self-sufficiency, past your sin, past your brokenness, and right back into his loving arms. God gave his only son as a sacrifice to bring us all home. That, friends, is called grace. That is grace. It is a freely given gift. Your job is not to earn it. Your job is not to deserve it. Your job is not to be good enough. Your job is simply to accept it to accept that gift and to believe that Jesus truly was your substitute, that he paid the price so that you could be free. When you do that, guys, when you do that, when you surrender your life to that idea and you truly start living as a, as a follower of Jesus and start to spread Eden into this world, when you surrender yourself to that beautiful vision, well, guys, I gotta tell you, that is when you will start to taste the fruit of the tree of life. That is when you will start to return to Eden and you will begin to find that the new life is springing up all around you. That is when your new life truly begins.